This is Our American Stories, and it's our special Memorial Day edition. And in this segment, we're going to talk about the deadliest battle and the deadliest war of all of Americans' wars. And of course, that was the Battle of Gettysburg. See the movie. It was terrific. Listen to the speech at home. You're about to hear the speech in a bit by Lincoln. 273 words only. Following a two-hour address by a very renowned speaker who no one remembers anymore. The war, well, it was a turning point, the Gettysburg Battle. Lee had been winning, and he felt it was his time to move north and put enough pressure, political pressure, on the people of the north to just simply quit. Lee showed up around Gettysburg with 70,000 men. The Union Army, 100,000. But ultimately, the Confederate Army was not able to break the Union defense. It was their last chance to break the North. They didn't know it then. But it was just about over. And of course, when Grant gets into control of the Union Army, his maneuvers to Vicksburg, well, we're going to cover all of it with Ron Chernow. Ron Chernow's book on Grant was just terrific. But we're here talking about the soldiers and the dead. There were 51,000 casualties in this very short battle. 3,100 Union dead, 4,700 Confederate dead. And by the way, Hillsdale College, and you hear a lot about them here on our show, they sent... More people to the Civil War, more soldiers from their school than any private school in America. 300. They lost 60. I'm not sure whether any of them lost their lives in Gettysburg. If you ever get a chance to go to that part of the country, do it. And do it when they're having a reenactment. It's not far from Harrisburg, about 35 miles south. And so months later, in November of 1863... Abraham Lincoln, president, then was invited to deliver remarks, which would later become known as the Gettysburg Address, at the official dedication ceremony for the National Cemetery of Gettysburg in that town. And author David McCullough, he sets up the scene. On November 19th, Lincoln traveled to Gettysburg to dedicate the new Union Cemetery. The featured speaker was Edward Everett of Massachusetts, a diplomat, clergyman, and celebrated orator. The president had been invited almost as an afterthought to offer a few appropriate remarks. Everett spoke for not quite two hours. Then Lincoln rose. A local photographer took his time focusing. Presumably, the president could be counted on to go on for a while. But he spoke just 269 words. He started off by reminding his audience that just 87 years had passed since the founding of the nation. And then he went on to embolden the Union cause with some of the most stirring words ever spoken. Lincoln was heading back to his seat before the photographer could open the shutter. 
And without further ado, let's listen to Sam Waterston's rendition of the Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met here on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of it as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that their nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead, who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they have thus far so nobly carried on. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And beautifully done by Waterston, and that's, of course, from Ken Burns' The Civil War. And for the rest of the hour, our celebration and our honoring of the fallen soldiers for all of America's wars. And when we come back, you're going to hear a whole lot more. And we would love to hear your stories here in Our American Stories. A love letter, a note, an oral story, an oral history, anything. Send it to us. And we'll take a look, we'll take a listen, and we'll try and produce some of them for next year's Memorial Day celebration here on Our American Stories. And we continue with our American stories and our special Memorial Day dedication 
And the war's rank by total number of U.S. military deaths is as follows. Number one, the American Civil War, with an estimated 750,000 dead. That's 2.385% of the total population that was living then, 31 million people back then. In today's terms, that would mean 6.6 million dead. Next up was World War II, 405,000 dead. World War I, 116,000. The Vietnam War, 58,000. The Korean War, 54,000. The Revolutionary War, 25,000. But that was 1% of our population because we were a country of only 2.5 million. And let's return to the American Civil War because there's been much discussion of how Memorial Day got its start. And we wanted to return or go back to a recording from way back in 1913. Harry Humphrey, an actor and a recording artist in his day, a big one, signed by Victor and by Edison himself. Well, he told a story about one of the great poems of all time, The Blue and the Gray, by Francis Miles Finch, who was a judge, an academic, a Yale grad, an abolitionist, and a poet. And he had heard a story about four women in Columbus, Mississippi, who had decorated not just the graves of Confederate soldiers in 1866, but Union soldiers from Shiloh, who'd found their way to Columbus to be buried as well. And those Southern women dedicated their graves too. Here is Harry Humphrey talking about the origins of Memorial Day. The beautiful ceremonial which is observed in most of the states on May 30th of each year had its origin in the South before the close of the Civil War. In that section it is known as Memorial Day and in the North as Decoration Day. With each returning spring, the Southern women strewed flowers upon the graves of those who had fallen in battle. In 1868, General John A. Logan, then Commander-in-Chief of the Grand Army of the Republic, issued an order fixing May 30th of that year for decorating the graves of the Union dead with flowers. Since then, the custom has been reverently observed, while a similar loving tribute is paid in the South to those who gave up their lives for that which they believed was right. One day, while a number of Confederate women were thus engaged in a New Orleans cemetery, they crossed to the graves of the Union dead and placed flowers upon them. This touching and noble act inspired the late Judge Francis M. Finch of New York to write his beautiful poem, The Blue and the Gray. And it was Columbus, Mississippi. Those women were from Columbus. It wasn't New Orleans. And that's why Columbus, Mississippi sees itself and considers itself the originator of Memorial Day. And now let's return to Harry Humphrey. And again, this was recorded way back in 1913. Here's the poem, The Blue and the Gray. By the flow of the inland river whence the fleets of iron have fled, where the blades of the grave grass quiver, asleep are the ranks of the dead. Under the sod and the dew, Waiting the judgment day, under the one, the blue, under the other, the gray. 
these in the robings of glory, those in the gloom of defeat, all with the battle blood gory in the dusk of eternity meet, under the sod and the dew, waiting the judgment day, under the laurel, the blue, under the willow, the gray. From the silence of sorrowful hours the desolate mourners go, lovingly laden with flowers alike for the friend and the foe, under the sod and the dew, waiting the judgment day. Under the roses, the blue, under the lilies, the gray. So with an equal splendor the morning sun rays fall, with a touch impartially tender on the blossoms, blooming for all, under the sod and the dew, waiting the judgment day, broidered with gold the blue, mellowed with gold the gray. So when the summer calleth on forest and field of gray, with an equal murmur falleth the cooling drip of the rain, under the sod and the dew, waiting the judgment day. Wet with rain, the blue, wet with rain, the gray. Sadly, but not with upbraiding, the generous deed was done. In the storm of the years that are fading, no braver battle was won. Under the sod and the dew, waiting the judgment day under the blossoms the blue under the garlands the gray no more shall the war cry sever or the winding rivers be red they banish our anger forever when they laurel the graves of our dead under the sod and the dew waiting the judgment day Love and tears for the blue, tears and love for the pain. And that was Harry Humphrey, recording artist, and that was recorded in 1913, that rendition of The Blue and the Gray by Francis Miles Finch. And now let's flash forward to Stephen Rossediak, a former police officer who shared with us his story of being at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial's iconic wall with the names of all the service members who died in the Vietnam War and what he saw there that particular day. He was as close to the wall as his wheelchair would permit. Leaning forward, he reached out until his feeble fingers were able to touch the shiny black granite. And as he did, he began to softly sob. I tried to look away, Conscious of the fact that my staring might cause him embarrassment, but I just couldn't. I was somehow drawn into the depths of this old man's profound sadness as he gently caressed the name etched into this memorial wall. Totally lost in the moment, I failed to notice when he caught me staring. He's my son, a helicopter gunner, shot down, lost. Back in 65, he said as he dabbed away the tears running down his cheeks. Again, he whispered, my son. 
Turning back towards the wall, he brought his fingers to his lips and then back to the stone bearing his hero son's name. I froze, lost in the moment, so moved by a father's undying love for a son long gone. His emotions, his grief, undiminished after so many years. Decades. Quite unexpectedly, I felt tears of my own, and so I turned away, slightly embarrassed for just a moment, when suddenly I felt this need to speak with him, to thank him for his son's sacrifice and his own. But when I turned to do so, he was gone, lost among the crowds of people who, like me, had come to view the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Wall in Washington, D.C., Before I left the grounds on that beautiful spring morning, I offered a silent prayer for both the father and the son. And then, as I looked across the expanse of the wall itself, I offered another, this one a prayer of gratitude for sacrifices suffered by the other 58,260 brave men and women whose names are forever memorialized along with that of a young helicopter gunner. Too many have forgotten the true meaning of Memorial Day, and that's a shame. Too many associate the last Monday in May as simply the unofficial start of another summer season and a day dedicated to picnics and barbecues, to parades and pool openings, to department store sales, and a three-day weekend. To all those men and women who gave their lives in the service of this great country, may they forever rest in peace. And that was Stephen Rossediak, a former police officer who shared with us his story of being at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. This is Our American Stories, dedicating this show, this day, to all those who paid the ultimate price. Our Memorial Day dedication continues after these messages. Turn to our American stories in our special Memorial Day edition. And for us, Memorial Day is about one thing alone, honoring those who paid the ultimate price. And my goodness, they want us to enjoy the picnics and the celebrations because that's why they died. That's why they served. And now we bring you Corporal Stephen Harris and a Marine's take on what Memorial Day means to him. I received my first folded American flag at a very young age, at the funeral of my uncle who served in the army during World War II. I didn't really understand the significance until I got into the service. Shortly after our six-month deployment to Afghanistan, after we'd returned home, I lost a buddy I served with, a very close brother to me. We had his memorial 
and he was flown back home. We had his memorial service with the battalion and we had to get together with his family to remember the funny moments and the smiles that he brought to everyone. His folded flag was given to his family and in his remembrance, me and a few guys that were very close with him, we built a memorial cross put every single ribbon and medal that he had earned. We put his name, his rank, a few other things. Bought some parting gifts with him. Even cracked open a beard, red stripe. Cracked it open, poured a little bit out and set a toast. Now it's in 2013. Every year after, until I got out, even after I got out Marines after me who came in and were under our wing of guidance continue to take care of this cross stop and show their new Marines and explain the significance behind the cross and why it's there just to see something that happened six years ago how that cross is still there is so meaningful to the guys that served with him to see younger Marines continue the upkeep but to understand the bigger meaning behind that cross while yes it's a memorial and yes while you're there you shed a tear you cry on another brother's shoulder you think back to the good times But every day, he gets to live vicariously through one of us, whether it's a tattoo on our arm for him or going throughout our days, thinking back to something he said that brought a a smile or, you know, tears to our eyes laughing. You never forget him. And later on, throughout my time in service, you know, it really, really had dawned on me the impact of receiving a folded American flag. You really don't understand how good we have it. For most Memorial Days, that three to four day weekend, everyone looks forward to. The parades, the barbecues with friends and families. It's the best way to kick off summer, right? Well, for veterans, Memorial Day is every day. It's pretty easy to spot a vet on Memorial Day. You just stop and take a look around. Whether you're with friends, families, or at a party, you'll see them all gathered around in a group, or you'll see them by themselves. They're usually looking up or taking taking a pause to themselves. Or if they're gathered in a group, they'll all crack open a beer at the same time. You'll see them pour a little sip out to the ground to signify the token of respect and gratitude for their brothers and sisters who could not be there, the ones that pay the ultimate sacrifice. Most people don't realize these sacrifices that have to be made by service members day in and day out. When I got out of the United States Marine Corps in 2015, it took me almost two to three years to realize why people didn't understand veterans.
why they didn't understand me. And then finally it dawned on me. They didn't understand because they never served. It's often, just like even on Memorial Day, that I find myself stopping to smile because I remember something one of my brothers had said. You often find little things that remind you of your time spent with those you served with. Whether it be just looking up at the tall breeze of old glory or hearing a song that reminds you of a time you spent with your comrades. Everyone likes to believe that old glory flying moves with the wind. But a brother I once served with told me the flag doesn't fly with the breeze, but with the last breath of somebody paying the ultimate sacrifice. Memorial Day is a day of pride, much like every other day. It starts with me waking up, looking at my medals and old photos and laughing as I think back to the old days. Me being 26, talking about the old days. That was seven or eight years ago. It doesn't seem that far, but it was. I'll get up out of my bed. I'll spend time with my friends, family, and other veterans. I always ask everyone to join me in a moment of silence to pay respect for those no longer with us and those still wearing that uniform. After that moment is over, I just look up to say thank you for those above who keep a watchful eye over all of us. I open my beer, I pour a little out, and continue my day with everyone. The sacrifice is some of the men and women I've served alongside is never forgotten. As you raise your flags high on this Memorial Day, you enjoy the parade in your town, and you cherish that time spent with your friends and family. I ask you to take a moment to yourself or with others to pray for those who have lost a loved one or for those deployed away from home again. Let us not forget the real reason we have this day. And if you ever should, I ask you to take a trip to Arlington National Cemetery and look at the rows upon rows of heroes, American heroes, who were willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice of life and limb so that we can enjoy the little freedoms and liberties that we have, such as that three to four day weekend that we have coming up. Memorial Day isn't just one day a year. It's every day a year for a veteran. And you've been listening to Corporal Stephen Harris, a Marine to the end, as all Marines are. And my goodness, we just love the the difficulty he had in just even talking about this. And that's what makes it so real. And that's why we bring you his story. He didn't realize the significance of that folded flag of his uncles who had died in World War II till he had served himself and lost a pal in battle. And he goes on to say, every day is Memorial Day for veterans. By the way, we're going to close out with the very first Memorial Day speech back when it was Decoration Day by then-Congressman James Garfield, one day to be president in 1880. But in 1868, he was a, a mere congressman. But he gave the speech on Decoration Day. That's what it was called then because he had served as a major in the Union Army in the Civil War, and it had just recently ended. He said these words, I am oppressed with a sense of the impropriety of uttering words on this occasion. If silence is ever golden, it must be here beside the graves of 15,000 men whose lives were more significant than speech and whose death was a poem, the music of which can never be sung. Beautifully said, Corporal Stephen Harris's story, his pal's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories, and on this special Memorial Day edition, we remember and honor the men and women who gave their lives in service to our nation. This next story is from Afghanistan, and from one of the bloodiest battles of that war. In July of 2008, American and Afghan forces moved into Wanat, a village in a valley in northeastern Afghanistan that lay the foundation for economic and security improvements throughout the region. Working in brutal heat, with very few supplies, the soldiers did the best they could to fortify a vehicle patrol base and a nearby observation post. They named the base in honor of their former platoon sergeant killed earlier in the year on his third combat deployment, Sergeant First Class Matthew Kaler, and they called the smaller observation post on a nearby ridge, O.P. Topside. Between the two positions, there were 48 U.S. service members. As the sun was barely coming up over the mountains on their fifth day in Wanat, 200, possibly as many as 500 Taliban fighters launched a complex and sustained attack from all angles. The opening salvo of rocket-propelled grenades struck O.P. Topside, inflicting heavy casualties and knocking Sergeant Ryan Pitts to the ground. The sergeant knew that if O.P. Topside fell, the enemy would move in and use this fortified higher ground to rain fire on the main body of Americans below. So despite bleeding heavily from his left arm and both legs, Pitts took control of the post and returned fire. When the enemy closed in, Sergeant Pitts started cooking off grenades, holding the live explosives in his hands for several seconds so they would explode on impact and could not be thrown back. Unable to stand and near death from blood loss, he crawled to a nearby radio to relay the information his captain needed to call in fire support. Enemy fighters were so close that they could hear Pitts whisper into the radio. For these actions and more, Sergeant Ryan Pitts was presented our nation's highest award for valor, the Medal of Honor. Standing before a room full of other Medal of Honor recipients, his family and his brothers-in-arms, here's how this proud member of 2nd Platoon, Chosen Company, 2nd Battalion Airborne, 503rd Infantry Regiment, known as The Rock, began his speech. I stand here in awe of the men I served with. Many of them are here today. It was the honor of my life to answer the call and serve our country alongside the men of Chosen Company, The Rock, and all the service members. There were many factors that brought us together and motivated us to fight. For me, it was my love for our country and dedication to my brothers. In my combat experience, the latter is the one guiding principle that carries us through battle. It was the men to our left and right that compelled us to fight with everything we had. There was an absolute duty to be your brother's keeper, a sentiment that I think we all shared. My favorite quote that embodied our dedication is ironically captured in a brief passage from Stephen Pressfield's The Afghan Campaign. It reads, Of one thing I'm certain, I will die before I let harm come to him. The shaft that impales him must first pass through my flesh. I saw the greatest men I have ever known personify this passage. Men who placed themselves between us and the enemy to protect and defend their brothers. Our fallen exemplified this most greatly as they fought to their last breaths to ensure that the rest of us could return home. They are the real heroes, and it is their names you should know. 
Specialist Sergio Abad, Corporal Jonathan Ayers, Corporal Jason Bogar, First Lieutenant Jonathan Brostrom, Sergeant Israel Garcia, Corporal Jason Hovader, Corporal Matthew Phillips, Corporal Pruitt Rainey, and Corporal Gunners Willing. These men and so many others displayed extraordinary acts of valor that day. When no one man carried the fight, we did it together. Chavez was shot through both legs, helping pull a mortally wounded Abad to cover. Davis, Krupa, Hamby, Meyer, Grapes, and Santiago manned critically important weapon systems that were heavily targeted by the enemy. Many men, including Soans and Meyer, exposed themselves to direct enemy fire to reload these weapon systems that were so important to our defense. One man picked up an unexploded missile that landed in a fighting position after being ejected from a destroyed vehicle. He ran the missile into the open so soldiers could continue to occupy the position in the process, exposing himself to direct enemy fire. Denton stood and returned fire despite being wounded in both legs and his dominant right hand because he had to continue fighting. Bogar returned fire, stopping only to apply medical aid to me and others before returning to the fight. In the beginning moments of the fight, Matt Phillips immediately returned fire and threw a hand grenade to engage the enemy and repel their assault. Ayers was heavily targeted while continuously firing his machine gun in the face of an overwhelming volume of enemy fire, despite already being struck in the helmet by an enemy round. Lieutenant Brostrom and Hovader braved withering enemy fire, covering more than 100 meters to help reinforce and defend OP topside. Rainey helped manage the fight at OP topside, distributing ammo and shifting weapon systems. In the second wave of reinforcements, Samaru, Garcia, Denton and Soans maneuvered to save my life and defend OP topside, where four paratroopers had been wounded and where Ayers, Bogar, Lieutenant Brostrom, Hovader, Phillips, Rainey and Zwilling had given their lives in our defense. They came to help me despite the danger of their own lives. Saving my life cost Garcia his own. You must ask yourself, how did these men do it? Or what compelled them to take these actions? Again, we return to our dedication to our brothers. We were a family whose bonds were forged in the fires of combat. Our brothers' lives were more important than our own. If they were in a fight, then we wanted to be there. They would never stand alone. I have seen so much valor displayed by my brothers that I cannot even begin to scratch the surface in the short time I have today. Rather, I will spend a lifetime telling their stories to honor their heroic deeds. This is a responsibility that accompanies the award, a responsibility that has been easier to accept knowing that the award belongs to every man I fought alongside. While the Medal of Honor is awarded to an individual, it has felt like anything but an individual achievement. It is ours, not mine. I will wear it for everyone there that day, especially those we couldn't bring home. The medal represents our sacrifices and those of every service member and will forever serve as a memorial to the fallen. I will never view myself as a recipient, but always as a caretaker. The word hero often accompanies the award. I don't care for the term, I never have. It is a distinction I have always felt was reserved for those that make the ultimate sacrifice. However, I am humbled and honored 
to look at my brothers and see men I consider my personal heroes, men I look up to. To every man who fought that day, every man who came to our aid, every leader and peer I ever had, it has been the honor of my life to serve and fight alongside you and all the brothers we lost. My family and I cannot thank you enough for all you have done for me and our country. I owe you a debt I can never repay. I honor you. Please stand and be recognized. And with those words, several rows of American infantrymen, engineers, helicopter pilots, and more stood as Ryan Pitts applauded them. The Medal of Honor recipient then continued. To the families and loved ones of Sergio Abad, Jonathan Ayers, Jason Bogar, Jonathan Brostrom, Israel Garcia, Jason Hovader, Matthew Phillips, Pruitt Rainey, and Gunners Willing. I have thought about them and their sacrifices every day. I will for the rest of my life, and I am not alone. You raised, molded, and loved incredible men. Many of the men present in this room are here because of their actions, actions that changed the course of history for us, actions that gave the rest of us a second chance. My son Lucas exists because of them, as do many other men's children. I promise that my son will grow up appreciating the sacrifices of men he never knew. I miss them dearly, but it is awe-inspiring that such men lived. They were professionals, they were warriors. Thank you, chosen few, The Rock. And you were listening to Sergeant Ryan Pitts, Medal of Honor recipient. But if you noticed, he mentioned all of his fellow soldiers' names again and again. And all of those men, well, at least in Sergeant Ryan Pitts' eyes, they were recipients too. By the way, he hated the word hero, said it himself. I don't care for the term. I never have. The Rock, by the way, is a reference to their regiment, the legendary 503rd. During World War II, when most of the airborne units were in Europe, the 503rd was the first to fight in the Pacific. They jumped on the Japanese fortress Corregidor, known as The Rock, and they've kept that nickname ever since, connecting the past to the present and the future. And these guys are historians, a lot of them, at least when it comes to the military. They know the tradition, the rich tradition, and all of those who served before them. Celebrating Medal of Honor recipient Ryan Pitts, and all of his fellow warriors, his brothers in arms. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're celebrating Memorial Day, America's most sacred secular holiday. It happens sometimes. You hear a story so beautiful and sad, so filled with love and grief, it makes you want to cry. 
It happened to me in late May of 2011 on Memorial Day. There was an interview on the radio with the father of a fallen soldier on a show called Here and Now. His name was Paul Monty. His son Jared was killed in action in Afghanistan in 2006 while trying to save the life of a fellow soldier. Jared received posthumously America's highest honor for heroism, the Medal of Honor. It was small consolation to his father. The son he loved was gone forever. Monty was being interviewed because he was on a mission. It turns out that on the Veterans Day after his son was killed, he tried to place a flag near his son's grave at National Massachusetts Cemetery on Cape Cod. Officials said he couldn't. The grave markers are flushed to the ground, he was told, and flags would make it difficult to cut the grass. Monty fought that cold, bureaucratic answer, and he fought it hard. He got the rule changed and started an organization called Operation Flags for Vets. And on the day he was being interviewed, he'd enlisted over 1,000 volunteers to plant flags at not just his son's grave, but the 55,000-plus graves at that national cemetery. Monty went on to tell some stories about his son, Jared, and how he always was helping other people, especially those less fortunate than himself. Monty then nearly choked up telling this story about his son. It was always the underdog that he stood up for. And uh, just everything was done quietly, though. It was, uh, you know, another as he was at Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And uh, he and two other buddies got a place together. And they went out and they furnished it. And one day the two guys came home and the kitchen set was missing. And Jared went home and they started, Jared, look kitchen set's gone where is it jared said well i was over at one of my soldiers houses today and his kids were eating on the floor so i figured they needed the kitchen set more than we did so so the 700 kitchen set disappeared <laughs> that's what he did he was he was like robin hood his dad talked about how his son hated any kind of attention for his good deeds Jared never liked any kind of notoriety at all. Um, all his medals went in a sock drawer. No one ever saw them. Um, he never wanted to stand out. Then Monty talked about his son's truck. It turns out he still had it, and he still drove it. Ah, uh, what can I tell you? It's just, it's him. It's got his DNA all over it. Um, I just, I love driving it because it reminds me of him, though I don't need the truck to remind me of him. I think about him every hour of every day. And that truck was a Dodge 4x4 Ram 1500 with decals on it that included the 10th Mountain Division, the 82nd Airborne, an American flag, and a Go Army decal. And as the details piled up, I found myself sitting in my car in a Walmart parking lot on a sunny Memorial Day in my own hometown, crying hard, crying like a child, crying as if I'd lost my child. I was also crying because I remember my own mom telling me about the day she found out her brother was killed in World War II. This was back before there were support groups for such things, before we even knew what PTSD was, before anyone dared to talk about war and the grief and carnage it left behind. It was the summer of 1944, 
and she remembered a black government car pulling up to her apartment building in West New York, New Jersey. The officers stepped out of the car and walked up the stairs. A dozen or so families lived in that apartment building, and several had sons, brothers, or fathers who'd volunteered to fight in World War II. Her brother John was one of them. He volunteered when he was just 18 years old. She told me she felt terrible praying that it would be someone else's door those men would knock on. Then she heard the footsteps stop in front of her door. Then she heard the knock on her door. She was 13 and remembered that moment like none other in her life. She told me she had never heard her mom cry so hard and that she remembered her dad not crying at all. What she did remember was that she never again saw him enjoy life. He'd lost his only son. But back to Paul Monty's story about his son. It turns out I wasn't the only one in the car crying that day. Nashville songwriter Connie Harrington was in her car, too, listening to the same story. Moved to tears, she pulled over and scribbled some notes. I'm in the car, and uh, I keep a little stack of post-it notes, and I begin to write the details of the truck. Um, while I'm driving, I know, I'm crying and driving on trying not to run off the road. I scribbled down, you know, that he said it burns a lot of gas, but he didn't care. He drove it anyway. Uh, he said he, he hasn't cleaned the truck up, <laughs> and uh, people get on to him for that. But it's you'd kind of want to have their things the way they were. When she got home, she couldn't get the story out of her head so she did what writers do and turned the words of that grieving father into a song. And when we come back, we're going to tell you the story of I Drive Your Truck and how it became a song, and we're going to play that song. Our special Memorial Day celebration for any family out there who's had a loss in their life to a war. This is a celebration, a memorial, in honor of their loss, your grief. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of Paul and Jared Monty and the story of a song, I Drive Your Truck. We had just heard from Connie Harrington. She enlisted a couple of male writers. She said, look, a woman just can't hear this one right, and she was right. 
And the three of them together finished this song called I Drive Your Truck and got it into the hands of the management of Lee Bryce, the singer, who recorded it. I Drive Your Truck ended up becoming the song of the year in 2013 at the CMAs. The YouTube video, which I would urge you to watch, has almost 30 million views. But this remarkable story didn't end there. It turns out that Paul Monty got a message from a woman whose son had died in the same battle Jared had. She sent me a message that she'd heard the song, Monty told the reporter, and that I had to listen to it. She knew I drove Jared's truck, and she drove her son's truck. We were a little bit of a club. Monty told the reporter he remembered not being able to get through the entire song. Quote, I'd get into it a few bars or so and I kind of welled up, he explained. But he still didn't know that it was his interview that inspired the song. Meanwhile, Harrington was doing everything she could to track down Monty and let him know he was the song's inspiration. After many hours and days searching on the web, she got his phone number. Soon after, Monty flew to Nashville to meet the people who wrote that song and celebrate its success. I Drive Your Truck captures a father's grief with a kind of emotional honesty and detail that's made country music America's music. Here are the opening lyrics. Eighty-nine cents in the ashtray Half-empty bottle of Gatorade Rolling in the floorboard that dirty Braves cap on the dash Dog tags hanging from the rear view Old skull can and cowboy boots And a gold army shirt Folded in the back This thing burns gas like crazy But that's alright People got their ways of coping Oh, and I got mine I drive your truck I roll every window down And I burn up Every back road in this town I find a field I tear it up Till all the pain's a cloud of dust Yeah, sometimes I drive your truck And isn't that what art can do? These different parents holding on to the things they hold on to, driving a truck, holding on to a boot, a dog tag, whatever it might be. What this song didn't describe is how Paul Monty's son lost his life. In June 2006, Jared's patrol came under fire from 50 enemy fighters. One of the soldiers who served under him was wounded. He needed help. Despite a blistering firefight, Jared responded to the call not once or twice, but three times. It was that last try that got him killed. His father explained that his son was the kind of man who never gave up on people and always, always tried to do the right thing. Quote, The right thing was trying to save this young private who was alone, out in the open, injured, and calling out for help his dad told reporters. Paul Monty then described the grief 
what he felt, why he held on to the truck, the mementos, and everything else. People tell you time heals all. Well, in this case, it doesn't. Losing a parent is one thing. That's your past. But losing a child, you've lost your future. You don't have those grandkids to look forward to and those those special days of going to the ballpark together or going fishing. All of that that you envisioned is gone. It's gone. When you lose your child, you lose the future. The grief Monty felt... Well, it, it's never going to go away, and he'll drive that truck for as long as it runs, probably longer. The last verse of the song, it says it all. The words are, I've cussed, I've prayed, I've said goodbye, I've shook my fist and asked God why. These days when I'm missing you this much, I drive your truck. So on Memorial Day, the most sacred of all of our secular holidays, gather your family around the smart TV or computer screen and watch the Lee Bryce video, I Drive Your Truck. Again, over 30 million views. Cry a little bit, cry a lot, and then reach out to a soldier or the parent of a soldier. Thank them, honor them for everything they've done everything they're about to do, and just listen to them. Just listen to them. Let them tell the story. You know, in my room, in my, in my house, up on the wall is a purple heart, and it's my mother's brother's purple heart. Underneath it, a picture of a cemetery where he's buried in France. And not a lot of family members listen to my mom tell that story. I don't think they wanted to deal with the pain. I don't know that they wanted to know. I was the curious kid, and my mom would talk about it time and time again. And it was healing power for her to tell the story, because that was a brother she loved. I mean, when you'd hear her talk about him, he was the all-star. There was nothing he wasn't going to do for the family. And it was an Italian family. And an Italian family, when you lose the only son, you lose the lineage. You lose that family name forever. And that's why she told me, she says, your, your granddad's not mean, and he's not grumpy. It's just he never really recovered from losing his boy, and he could never have another son. He was too old. And you can't know what that's like when you came from where granddad came from, Lee. You can't know what that's like. And you can't. So again, those conversations, that's what Memorial Day is about, folks. It's not just hot dogs. It's not just all those other things. Go to a gravesite. We love sending our interns to the national cemeteries. We send them there, and we ask people to tell their story. And by the way, send your stories to us for next year's Memorial Day celebration. We want to hear your stories about fallen loved ones, about your grief, about your joys, because my goodness, you know, in the end, Paul had lots of great memories about his son. And by the way, the most important thing to do after doing all that talking, after doing all that celebrating, is to make sure to have some fun on Memorial Day, too. 
Because that's why our guys go to fight. That's why they do what they do. They want us to mourn for a bit, respect their loss, their sacrifice, their service. But in the end, they die to defend our freedoms, including the freedom to get that ice-cold beer, fire up the grill, and celebrate too. You can do both in the same day, folks. And again, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. We want to hear your story so we can play them next year here on Our American Stories. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And also sign up for all that we do. Give us your email address and we'll send you our five best stories each week. And they'll be both in audio form and in print form if what you want to do is just read them. So again, we're going to go out with the final part of the song by Lee Bryce that we've been talking about for these two segments. I Drive Your Truck, the story of a fallen soldier, a grief-stricken dad, and a hit song. And only in America does this kind of thing happen. And so let's go out to the sounds of Lee Bryce singing I Drive Your Truck. Paul Monty's story, Jared Monty's story, so many Gold Star family stories here on Our American Stories. I drive your truck I roll every window down And I burn up Every back road in this town I find the field I tear it up Till all the pain's a cloud of dust Yes, sometimes Brother, sometimes I drive your truck I drive your truck I hope you don't mind I hope you don't mind I drive your Habib, and this is a special Memorial Day edition of Our American Stories. And next up, we'd like to tell you the story of a Catholic priest and Navy chaplain who also happened to earn our nation's highest award for valor. Here's Father Daniel Mode, who wrote the book on Father Vincent Capadano, appropriately titled The Grunt Padre. It was Labor Day in the United States. People were running about to the beaches and the last barbecues, having a joyous time before school began. But in a whole nother world away in Vietnam, the war was continuing to rage. And on this Labor Day of September 4th, 1967, Father Capadano found himself 50 miles to the southwest of Da Nang with the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Early that morning, a small platoon of men of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines, was on a typical search and destroy mission, a patrol. They found the enemy, or really the enemy had found them. This small group of less than 100 men found 2,500 North Vietnamese in a major offensive during elections in Vietnam. Obviously, this platoon was quickly overrun, and 
more and more command elements of the 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines were added to this battle that would be known as Operation Swift. One company after the next, including M Company of 3rd Battalion, 5th Marines. Father Capadano was with them at the headquarters when they got the call to go. And they were to go to a battalion aid station that was quickly being set up so that the wounded and the dying could come to a place on the battlefield. That's where Father Capadano needed to be. So he boarded the helicopters with M Company and made their way towards that battalion aid station, literally in the midst of the battle. The helicopter didn't make it there. It was literally shot down in the midst of rice fields so close to the battlefield. Father Capadano got off the helicopter with his men. There are two platoons on either side as they made their way now on foot to that battalion aid station. But between them and that aid station lay the conflagration of war. They set themselves up on a small knoll. On the other side of that knoll raged the battle. On this side, M Company established its command post. Father Capadano could hear the gunfire, the men engaged in battle, and he heard the radio operator calling back to the command post, we're being overrun, we're being overrun, we can't hold out. That was Corporal Lovejoy. Well, Father Capadano couldn't hold out anymore. He had been in Vietnam for 16 months. He had already served with the 7th Marines, was in eight major battle campaigns. He knew what combat was all about. He knew where his men needed him most, and he knew where his sacraments were needed most. And it wasn't on the safety side of that knoll of the hill. He dashed over that hill, found that radio operator, Corporal Lovejoy, grabbed him by the shoulder, and brought him back to relative safety. Time and time again throughout that late morning, and early afternoon, he would do the same thing with the wounded and dying. In a firefight like that, it doesn't take long until everyone gets injured, at least a little. And Father Capadano, he was no exception. His first wound of the day was through his right hand. It was shot, disabling his fingers. He was bandaged up, but refused to leave the battlefield on the next medevac. He said, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Oftentimes, the Marines deployed tear gas through the area in order to dissuade the North Vietnamese who don't have gas masks to disperse. All the Marines donned their gas masks, save one. He had lost it. Without a thought, Father Capadano took off his gas mask, gave it to that young Marine to continue the fight, while Father Capadano choked back the tears. For that heroic act, he got his second wound of the day in his right shoulder when a mortar went off, now disabling his whole right arm. Again, was bandaged up but refused to leave the battlefield, only saying, I need to be where my Marines need me most. Sergeant Peters was dying. He propped himself exposed to fire on a tree stump. Sergeant Peters would receive the Medal of Honor that day for his heroics on the battlefield. Sergeant Peters was an Orthodox man, again dying, exposing himself to gunfire so that he could point out where the machine guns were on the ridge. No one dared go near Sergeant Peters save one man, Father Capadano, who ran to his side despite the bullets, despite his own wounds, to pray with that man, to care for him in his last hours of life, and prayed the Our Father as he died in his arms. After that scene, a Marine shouted out, my gun is jammed, my gun is jammed. Without a thought, Father Capadano took 
the rifle of Sergeant Peters, ran across the battlefield without firing a shot to give it to that young Marine to continue the fight. The last moment of Father Capadano's life took place near a machine gun nest where three Marines, one of them being Ray Harton, Corporal Ray Harton, were going to try to put down that machine gun nest that was getting the better hand of the battle. As they made their way there, they were all shot. Two instantly killed. Ray was shot in his left shoulder. A corpsman went to his side, Corpsman Leal. That corpsman was shot through his legs. Both of them now were lying on the battlefield bleeding, expecting that the next thing they would feel would be bullets or bayonets. Instead, it was Father Capadano running across the battlefield to them. First, he went to Ray Harton, who again was bleeding through his shoulder. He blessed and anointed him. Ray had just served his mass the day before on Sunday. And he said these words to him, Staying calm, Marine. God is with us all today, and you're going to be okay. Then he ran to the side of Corman Leal. Again, his legs had been shot. He prayed over them. And at that moment of his prayers, Corman Leal was also Catholic. He was shot 27 times in the back. And so ended the life of Father Vincent Capadano here on this earth. And for his gallantry, he earned our nation's highest decoration for valor, the Medal of Honor. But Father Capadano's influence went well beyond Vietnam, well beyond September 4, 1967. One man who used to teach in school with him when he was a seminarian read the story of Father Capadano's death. He hadn't been to church for a long time. And because he was so moved by the heroic aspect of Father Capadano and knowing him, he decided it was time for him to get back to church. He walked into the church, told the priest why he was there and wanted to go to confession. And then the priest, kind of amazed at this whole thing, said, well, why? Why are you coming back? And he told him the story of Father Capadano, and then he said these words. I guess a missionary doesn't stop working even after he dies, does he? He sure doesn't. And as you can imagine, Father Capadano changed the lives of many of the Marines he served in Vietnam. One of those Marines is a name you might recognize, and you'll certainly recognize his company. One of the persons I got to know through this who was with Father Capadano on the day he died is a lieutenant, Fred Smith, the founder and CEO of FedEx. But on that day of September 4th, he was a lieutenant in the Marine Corps. He knew Father Capadano well, and it was at that death that inspired Fred Smith to re-engage in his faith, to re-engage in a purpose in life. Ultimately, he would say that it was Father Capadano's example and witness that propelled him to take that risk so many years ago to found that company. And what a story, the story of Father Vincent Capadano. And two quotes stuck out. I need to be where my Marines need me most. And a missionary doesn't stop working, even after his death. And my goodness, the life of Fred Smith. Well, he'd testify to that, the founder of FedEx. He employs 400,000 people right now, willing to take that risk, willing to re-engage in his faith because of the way Father Vincent Capadano served his men and died for his men. Father Capadano's story, here on Our American Stories, our special Memorial Day celebration. 
This is Lee Habib, and we continue with our Memorial Day special. And you've heard some great stories on our show from Bob McClellan, a hoodlum turned Marine turned investment advisor. But this next piece just struck him like a bolt of lightning. The great Greek warrior Achilles went to fight in Troy, not for the king or for money, but for fame. Odysseus told him that the Trojan War would be the greatest war, and to fight and die in it would mean that Achilles' name would live forever. How true. I write this today more than 3,500 years later. Achilles died from a poisonous arrow shot by the coward Paris, and he sacrificed his life to achieve that promised glory. It makes me ask myself, what am I willing to die for? As a parent, I would immediately save my children, but ask me if I would do it to save my spouse or my friend. How about a stranger in a foreign land? How about giving my life to save a stranger sitting in a foxhole with me? Soldiers face these choices all the time. They die for many reasons, but what is unique about American soldiers is their willingness to die for someone else. History shows soldiers fight to protect their freedom and their property. But soldiers in the Civil War fought and died for the freedom of someone else they didn't even know. They weren't seeking fame. There were no spoils of war to take back to your farm in Maine. They fought to extend freedom to everyone, and Americans died to see that promise fulfilled. The high values placed on sacrifice is not something that the military can order you to do. It is not part of the training. It lies in the character of Americans who understand why freedom is important for everyone, regardless whether it's a slave in the South, freeing Europe from the grip of fascism, or to suppress an enemy anywhere who looks to make its citizens its prisoners. I saw a recruiting poster from World War I one day. A man is straddling a newspaper at his feet and as he's ripping his tie and shirt off, we read on the front page the headline, Huns Kill Women and Children. Underneath, in bold letters, it says, Tell that to the Marines. We hold these acts as the highest example of courage and sacrifice, and we bestow the Medal of Honor to recognize our admiration and respect for their willingness to risk their lives to save another. The medal represents not only the courage of the individual recipient, but all the soldiers who gave their life in battle. Look over the list of recipients and you'll see that so many of these soldiers were awarded their medal posthumously. They all need to be remembered. This list is one of the many places you will see American courage on display. And as always, Bob does such a terrific job. And one of these stories of American courage, well, we're going to turn to Somalia to tell it, 1993, when American forces were protecting a humanitarian aid effort in the midst of a famine and civil war. During a mission to capture several of a Somali warlord's top lieutenants, two U.S. Black Hawk helicopters were shot down. A ground task force was cobbled together to secure the crash site, but there weren't any resources left for the second. Circling overhead, two Delta snipers, Master Sergeant Gary Gordon and Sergeant First Class Randy Shugart, saw how desperate the situation was. 
An armed force of hundreds converged on the second crash site, and there were no doubts about what an angry mob would do to a downed American flight crew. So these two men asked higher headquarters for permission to insert into the crash site. This request was insane and denied. With the mob getting closer, Gordon and Shugart asked again, and again they were denied. One more time they asked, finally they got the green light. The two men fought through a hundred-meter maze of shanties and shacks to reach the critically injured crew of Super 6-4. They fired their rifles and pistols with deadly accuracy, delaying a mob that they knew they had no chance against. Running out of ammo, Gordon and Shugart were killed in action. But because of them, the pilot Michael Durant eventually made it home alive. Gordon and Shugart earned the Medal of Honor and set the highest standard for love for American fighting men. But where does that leave their families? Gary Gordon's widow, Carmen, wrote this letter for their children, age six and three. My dearest Ian and Brittany, I hope that in the final moments of your father's life, his last thoughts were not of us. As he lay dying, I wanted him to think only of the mission to which he pledged himself. As you grow older, if I can show you the love and responsibility he felt for his family, you will understand my feelings. I did not want him to think of me or of you because I didn't want his heart to break. Children were meant to have someone responsible for them. No father ever took that more seriously than your dad. Responsibility was a natural part of him, an easy path to follow. Each day after work, his truck pulled into our driveway. I watched the two of you run to him, feet pounding across the painted boards of our porch, yelling, Daddy. Every day I saw his face when he saw you. You were the center of his life. Ian, when you turned one year old, your father was beside himself with excitement, baking you a cake in the shape of a train. On your last birthday, Brittany, he sent you a handmade birthday card from Somalia. But your father had two families. One was us, and the other was his comrades. He was true to both. He loved his job. Quiet and serious adventure filled some part of him I could never fully know. After his death, one of his comrades told me that on a foreign mission, your dad led his men across a snow-covered ridge that began to collapse. Racing across a yawning crevice to safety, he grinned wildly and yelled, Wasn't that great? You will hear many times about how your father died. You will read what the President of the United States said when he awarded the Medal of Honor. Gary Gordon died in the most courageous and selfless way any human being can act. But you may still ask why. You may ask how he could have been devoted to two families so equally. Dying for one, but leaving the other. For your father, there was no hard choices in life. Once he committed to something, the way was clear. He chose to be a husband and a father, and never wavered in those roles. He chose the military, and I shall not fail those with whom I serve became his simple religion. When his other family needed him, he did not hesitate, as he would not have hesitated for us. It may not have been the best thing for us, but it was the right thing for your dad. There are times now when the image of him coming home comes back to me. 
I see him scoop you up, Ian, and I see you, Brittany, bury your head in his chest. I dread the day when you stop talking and asking about him, when he seems so long ago. So now I must take the responsibility for keeping his life entwined with yours. It's a responsibility I never wanted. But I know what your father would say. Nothing you can do about it, Carmen. Just keep going. Those times when the crying came as I stood at the kitchen counter were never long enough. You came in the front door, Brittany, saying, Mommy, you sad. You miss Daddy. You reminded me I had to keep going. The ceremonies honoring your dad were hard. When they put his photo in the Hall of Heroes at the Pentagon, I thought, can this be all that is left? A picture? Then General Sullivan read from the letter General Sherman wrote to General Grant after the Civil War. Words so tender that we all broke down. Throughout the war, you were always in my mind. I always knew if I were in trouble and you were still alive, you would come to my assistance. One night, before either of you were born, your dad and I had a funny little talk about dying. I teased that I would not know where to bury him. Very quietly, he said, a poem in my uniform. Your dad never really liked to wear his uniform. And a poem, Maine, was far away from us. Only after he was laid to rest in a tiny flag-filled graveyard in Lincoln, Maine, did I understand. His parents, burying their only son, could come tomorrow and the day after that. You and I would not have to pass this grave on the way to the grocery store, to Little League games, to ballet recitals. Our lives would go on. And to the men he loved and died for, the uniform was a silent salute, a final repeat of his vows. Once again, he had taken care of all of us. On a spring afternoon, a soldier from your dad's unit brought me the things from his military locker. At the bottom of a cardboard box beneath his boots, I found a letter. Written on a small, ruled tablet, it was his voice. Quiet, but confident in the words he wanted us to have, if something should happen to him. I'll save it for you. But so much of him is already inside you both. Let it grow with you. Choose your own responsibilities in life. But always, always follow your heart. Your dad will be watching over you, just as he always did. Love, Mom. And you are listening to Medal of Honor recipient Gary Gordon's widow, Carmen. Her letter to their two children, then age six and three. Gary Gordon, Randy Sugart, Pay the ultimate price. Their stories. Here on Our American Stories. 